I want to invite you this morning to turn to John 19. John chapter 19. We're going to look at the locations, the physical places where our Savior suffered and learn some impactful lessons, I think, as a result of this brief study this morning. John chapter 19, I want to begin with verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Father, I pray that you would take our time together in your word and make it profitable to us. May we understand clearly all that you have for us that we might appreciate and respond in faith to our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. We're going to look next week a little more in depth at Palm Sunday and Jesus coming into Jerusalem in that triumph. But it's interesting to note that between Palm Sunday and just a matter of a few days later, there was a significant difference. He rode into Jerusalem on the colt and then a few days later was driven out and he bore the cross up the hill. And you realize that something pretty dramatic had to have happened in those few days. From triumph to absolute devastation. Everybody's hopes and ambitions were dashed. Of course, they were looking for a physical, earthly ruler to take them out from under the oppression of Rome. And that was not Jesus' full intent. I believe if they had responded to who he truly was, that that may have been a result. But in God's plan and order and understanding of things, he knew that wasn't going to be the case. And yet he was willing to go there anyway. Let me show you some of the dramatic change that took place. On Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem, down the hill, into the city. On Thursday, he bore the cross up the hill out of the city. On Sunday, they sang Hosanna to the King, a grand celebration. On Thursday, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. Something pretty dramatic had taken place. He came in on Sunday with words of acclamation, and he was driven out on Thursday with words of accusation. On Sunday, they were ready for a coronation. On Thursday, they were primed for crucifixion. He entered on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, to the cheers of the crowd, and he exited a few days later to their jeers. What a comparison of just a few days. Just what happened between the Mount of Olives and Mount Calvary between Sunday and Thursday. And there are, I think, three primary locations that give us some insight into what was taking place. These places tell the story of his suffering, and we recognize them, we acknowledge them because of what transpired at each location. So we're going to get right into it. I'm going to take it to Matthew 26, verse 36. The first location is a familiar place. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the press. It says, then came Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
We know a little bit about Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, literally means oil press. That's what the term Gethsemane is translated to be, the oil press. It was a garden of olive trees. And, of course, those olive trees would, the, the olives would be uh, plucked from the tree and they would go to the press, which was also located in the garden, and they would extract the oil from them. And it was at this location that Jesus went and he took his disciples, the three of them, to pray. And you remember the story, Jesus says, you wait here and you pray, I'm going to go down and pray alone. Jesus uh, prayed in verse 38 of Matthew 26, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Jesus was pressed by sorrow. Well, that conjures up uh, something from Old Testament prophecy, doesn't it? Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. You think of the king of glory, the creator of the universe, and the splendor that he had in heaven, and the angels ministering and serving, and you think, a man of sorrows, grief, he understands that? As you read the scriptures, you understand that he identified with us because he walked in our shoes, as it were. He understood sorrow. He understood pain. You remember, he, he went to Lazarus after he died and had been buried for three days, and when he went, it says Jesus wept. He identified with their grief. He was a man of sorrows. He was overwhelmed, though, here in the garden with the great anguish based on his human nature. In his soul, he was deeply affected. He was pressed down, and it says even unto death. That's how heavy the sorrow was on Jesus. On all of that mountaintop, you remember, Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem. He was filled with sorrow for those who were so filled with sin. Reminds me of the song, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Man of Sorrows. Ruined uh, sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I, I, I cannot comprehend the king of the universe with all of his splendor coming to identify with me, whom so sinful. He was pressed by sorrow. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sin on his body on the tree. He was pressed by sin. And the question then kind of arises, well, when was he pressed by our sin? When was the sin burden of the world placed on the Savior? We know that he took our sin to the cross, but exactly when did he bear that? Isaiah 53, 4 said, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In Luke twenty two forty four, it says, He sweat great drops of blood. Why? The sin of the world, I believe, was placed on our Savior in the garden here at Gethsemane. And that's where he sweat drops of blood. The Bible teacher Warren Wearsby in one of his commentaries on Luke says, Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions that he sweat drops of blood. 
There is a rare physical phenomena known as hemat... Uh, yeah, medical terms. Hematidrosis. Does that sound close? <laughs> Hematidrosis. In which under great emotional stress, the tiny blood vessels rupture in the sweat glands and produce a mixture of blood and sweat. Why did he sweat great drops of blood? When he took the cup, as he calls it, the sin burden of the world was placed upon him. Dr. John Gill writes, it was the sense he had of the sins of his people which were imputed to him and the curse of the righteous law of God which he endured and especially the wrath of God which was led into his soul. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, he would be made sin for us and separated from his father. He called his solemn experience drinking the cup when he... Did he receive the cup? In the garden. Verse 43 says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Oh, why did the angel come to him just then to strengthen him? Dr. George Morrison writes on the subject, says, Angels came and strengthened our Savior as he courageously accepted the cup from the Father's hand. When did the angels come to strengthen him? They came to him in the garden as he received the cup. That's when Jesus was bringing on himself all of our sin. You remember he said, Father, not my will but thine be done. Take this cup from me but not my will. The cup of our sin. Every sin that you and I have committed. Every sin that you and I will commit. Sins of action. Sins of omission, sins of thoughts, sins of rebellion. Every one of those was laid on Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a burden. Martin Luther writes, No man can know or can see what that anguish must have been. If any man began even to experience such suffering, he would die. If a man could feel such anguish and distress as Christ felt it, it would be impossible for him to endure it and for his soul to remain in his body. Though Christ, through Christ alone, was this agony possible, and it wrung from him sweat, which was great drops of blood. In Gethsemane, the place of the press, the sin of the world was pressed onto our Savior. One poet wrote, all the sin of the world on the Savior was hurled as he knelt in the garden alone. Hear his soul, burdened plea, let this cup pass from me. Even so, not my will, thine be done. Gethsemane, a place of his sufferings where it began. There's another location in John 19, verse 13. Pilate, it says, brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. The pavement, Gabbatha, was the place where the public hearings were held. It was a courtroom, if you will. Uh, the Roman soldiers would come into this area with the accused. They'd bring a prisoner in and... Uh, Isaiah describes it as being led as a lamb to the slaughter. There was the court 
people and there was the crowds out about watching and seeing what was going to take place and the judgment that was going to come down. And you know the mood of that crowd at that time. It was not a happy crowd. They weren't looking for justice. They were looking for condemnation. The Roman soldiers would bring them in and their hearts would be just as hard as the pavement they walked on. And there Jesus, the Savior of sinners, was subjected to such cruel indignities, to indecencies in this interrogation by sinners. Look at who was there in those proceedings. Of course, there was the judge and there was Jesus. Matthew 27 describes it this way. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he, didn't, he answered not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. So Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and Jesus, the judge of the universe, are standing face to face. Imagine that picture, a regional judge and the judge of the universe. Therefore, the judge from heaven in this setting became submissive before the judge of mere men. Incredible amount of humility. In Philippians 2.8, Paul wrote, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What an example. There were, of course, the accusers. Matthew 27 goes on in verse 10. It says, All the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. They plotted to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Jesus' own people, the people he came to minister to, motivated by a satanic blindness and a madness, his own people rejected him. Well, John 1.11 said he came to his own, but his own received him not. And of course, with the accusers, there came the accusations. There were a number of them. Luke 23 says they said that he perverts the people. In John 19, they said, well, he speaks against Caesar. In John 19, he goes on to say that he claims to be the very Son of God. That's called blasphemy. And in Matthew 26, they brought up the accusation that he said he would destroy the temple. How dare you? So there were accusers, there were accusations. Also at Gabbatha, there were the beatings. There was the, the mocking. John 19, right at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 3, describes that. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it into his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail King Jesus! And they struck him with their hands at the place of the pavement. There was, of course, the sentencing that took place there at that court hearing. 
Verse 6 says, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He handed him over. He relinquished his responsibility. You know, we have a saying about unjust courts when a person is wrongly convicted, and we call it a kangaroo court. That term kangaroo court was popularized during the gold rush back in the 1840s, early 1850s, and it came from the notion of justice preceded by leaps and bounds as a kangaroo. <laughs> kangaroo court or a kangaroo trial refers to a sham legal proceeding. The colloquial phrase kangaroo court describes a judicial proceeding that denies due process rights in the name of expediency. The outcome of such a trial is essentially determined in advance, and usually it's for the, the, the purpose of providing a conviction, justifiable or not. And that's done either through ongoing, through going through the motions, manipulating the procedure, or by allowing, simply not allowing any defense. Of course, that term would not have been known at Gabbatha, and yet it's an apt description of exactly what took place at that time. Verse 17 then describes our final location. He bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. It's the place of places. You know, we have so many historic places. We've got a few around Tumwater, We've got a few around Seattle and of course, you go to the East Coast and they're replete with historic places that are still open today so you can go see them. <laughs> There's places around the world that people go and travel specifically to see them because of some significant activity or event that took place on that place. Many of those are scenes that evoke great feelings of nostalgia, great struggles, maybe a great crisis. Or maybe it's just um, a place that we love to remember. I like when I go to Wenatchee to drive by the home I grew up in. Maybe you enjoy doing that kind of thing too. See what it's like today. Remember what it was like. Perhaps the place where you trusted the Lord as Savior is a sacred place in your heart. And you go back there in your mind and as opportunity allows. But the place called Golgotha is the place of all places. It is there that the Son of God performed His greatest work on your behalf and mine. It's called Golgotha in Hebrew. It's called Calvary in Latin. And it's there on that rugged hill that the Lamb of God bore my sin and your sin for all time and eternity. Verse 19 says, and he bearing his cross went forth. There was the cross bearing. He bore the cross before the cross bore him. He had help, you remember, as he stumbled out of the city and up the hill and they brought Simon of Cyrene and said, you, there's Simeon, you, you carry that cross on his behalf. He didn't have help when he was on the cross. In fact, the father turned from him, as it were. 
That was a transaction between God and Christ alone. Verse 35 of Matthew 27 says, And they crucified him, bearing cross. Golgotha was an execution chamber. That's exactly what it was. This was a place that a criminal did not return from. You went there to die. Oftentimes, criminals would hang there literally for days. Open wounds, raging fevers, excruciating pain. Of course, the added discomfort of the hot sun at the day and the cold nights. Jewish historians tell us that often the bodies were left hanging on the cross and the bones were picked clean by the birds. It was a torturous method of death. It was very well calculated to make the convicted sufferer suffer as much as possible before they died. And it was to this place and this kind of a death that our Savior went. The song says, Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn, walked Christ my Savior, weary and worn, bearing for sinners death on the cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Napoleon is said to have looked at a map of the world as he was marching his armies from one country to the next, conquering as he went. And as he looked at the map, the country of Britain was colored in red. And pointing to that red spot, Napoleon said, if it were not for that spot, I could conquer the world. I think Satan, looking at the world, could have said as he looked at the spot on Calvary, if it weren't for that spot, that red spot, I could conquer the world. But he can't. And he didn't, and he won't. Well, these are scenes of our Savior as he suffered for us. And his suffering spanned that great gulf between our sin and God's righteousness, between heaven and hell. To be there at Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha, those were the places that marked the trail of suffering, the primary places. But that, of course, is not the end of the story, is it? And there is another place that we need to consider before we conclude. It's another garden. It's a place of prospect. In John 19, beginning in verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. You look at Gabbatha and there was anger. You, you look at Gethsemane and there was anguish, drops of blood. You look at Golgotha, Golgotha and there was agony. Anger, anguish, agony. But when you come to this garden tomb you find astonishment because it became resurrection morning. The angel said, he is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Because of what transpired there, we have hope. We have a prospect for the future, a prospect for eternity. 
Jesus said these words, Because I live, you shall also live. Because he was no longer in the tomb, there's a prospect of hope for you and I. This is the event that we are coming towards celebrating when Easter arrives. Thank God there was a garden tomb. Thank God there's a prospect for all who trust him and believe in him as Savior. He bore your sin and mine on the cross. He took that sin on himself in the garden in extreme anguish beyond comprehension. And he did that for the singular purpose because he loves you and he loves me. Not for what I have done, but for the relationship that we can have with him. That's why he created us, to walk in fellowship, to walk in communion with him. Do you know him as your Savior? Have your sins been taken care of? He says, to those who will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. No, the suffering that he endured was for the very purpose of receiving you, not for condemning you. The condemnation, that price was paid. It's finished, he cried. Have you received him as Savior? Are you walking in truth with him? Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts an understanding of the sacrifice our Savior made on our behalf. Pray, Father, that that would motivate us to know him, to love him, to serve him, and to look forward to the day that we will be with him forever. What a blessed day that will be. As we look back at Calvary and at the cross, we understand that our Savior suffered and He bled and He died. He devoted His life for us. May we understand it and respond to it in faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Before you lift your heads, perhaps you have been impacted by what transpired in those four or five days. And you recognize that what he did then was for you today. It seems so distant, and yet it's so real. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, he extends himself to you. It's simply a matter of your heart attitude responding to God in faith, accepting the gift that he offers you, the gift of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, the gift of his very spirit to live and dwell within you, to lead you and to guide you into truth and understanding. And simply expressing to him, God, I know that I am a sinner separated from you, but I now understand the price that Jesus paid so that my sin could be dealt with. I receive his payment for myself. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a new person. And as you express those thoughts to him, his promise is that he will come and he will indwell and he will give to you that eternal life. Hope for today, the promise of eternity in his very presence. If that's a thought that you have prayed and expressed to him, I would love to hear about it. Just mention it to me on the way out. I want to be able to pray for you with wisdom and encourage you as we're able. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for its expression of our Lord Jesus and all he's done for us. 
In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing a closing song.